everybody <laughs> good morning everybody good morning brent oh the happy music ah, just gets it's the a, day going doesn't it? it it's a great way to start a wednesday trumpets and a cup of coffee i always say <laughs> trumpets and coffee <laughs> wait crumpets or trumpets <laughs> all of them what the all heck the above. good for the spirit and good for the belly <laughs> it is indeed excellent and we've got a fantastic guest this morning chris who's our guest this morning we're being joined by dr Britt andriata who's uh who's joining us from california where it's very early for her so we appreciate the uh the indulgence this morning uh good morning to everybody in the chat um Dr. Andrietta, maybe we'll get you to give us a bit of an introduction, you know, a bit, a bit of your own background, so folks who haven't encountered you before somewhere uh, have a sense of, you know, who you are, where you're coming from, that kind of a thing. Great. Please call me Britt, and <laughs> hello to everyone on the, the live stream. I see folks from Canada and France and Dubai, lovely to see, and all over the U.S., lovely to see you all. Um, well, my background is, you know, in in... Moving backwards, I'm currently an independent consultant and I do a lot of work with companies around the world. I'm an author and I've written three books on the brain science of things. I started <laughs> off with the brain science of learning because I was the chief learning officer at lynda.com and I just wanted to get better at my craft. So I dug into the neuroscience research just to see what it said about how we learn and I was astounded and that became book number one, which I recently revised. There's a second edition out. And then book number two happened because uh, LinkedIn acquired lynda.com and I was in the middle of that acquisition and it was a positive experience for me, but also it, it made me realize that all the change models I was certified in absolutely did nothing to help. And so <laughs> I thought, well, maybe let's go see what brain science says about this. So that's Wired to Resist. It's about the brain science of change. And then I was like, I guess I'm doing this. I guess I'm now an author that's... Uh, <laughs> looking at the brain science of stuff. So then I looked into teams and what brings out the best in teams and why inclusion is so important. So that's wired to connect. And then in that journey, people were like, hey, can we get certified in your models? Do you have training we can buy? And I, you know, I had built it for clients and I was like, yeah, I guess you could get you certified in this. I've got the activities and the decks and all the videos ready. So now I sell learning solutions when people are interested in bringing the brain science perspective into their into their stuff. I'm also a mom of a teenager. Mm. So being trapped in the house 24 seven with a 13 year old <laughs> is really fun. Um, <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. Uh, so that's been, that's a journey. And uh, we have a, you know, trying to keep the two cats from not eating the new hamster is a daily, daily thing that we're working on around here. Oh, and yeah. I, I love learning. I love learning. I'm a, a lifelong learner. I'm always learning something. So that's a little bit about me. And how we got to today. Before that, I was um, professor and dean at the University of California, Santa Barbara for 20 some years. So I did a lot in higher education. But even then I was focused on helping people perform at their best. So that's kind of always been my theme. I really believe folks have a lot of potential and I like to give them tools and information that help them maximize that potential. Very cool. Very cool. So something, as you were explaining, you know, your journey there a little bit that caught my ear was you, you mentioned that, um, 
you know, the models that you were already sort of understanding, et cetera, weren't really helping you sufficiently sort of cope with change. So could we maybe talk just a little bit about those models so that we know where you were, and then we can talk about where you went from there. Yeah, so a lot of the change models out there, and there's, you know, ADCAR, Carter's ADCAR, and, you know, there's just a bunch of them. Uh, they're all great, except they focus on the structural journey of moving the change initiative forward. They don't deal with the people side and what's happening to us biologically as we move through change. Uh, so what's nice about my model is that I've added the people side and a lot of companies use them both together because we're biologically we're wired to resist change. Hmm. The brain sees change, any change as a precursor to danger and only settles down when it gets enough information. So our first reaction is always, oh, no, this could be bad. And then depending on how our leaders communicate, that either gets exacerbated and stirred up or it gets simmered down. But we do go through kind of a, you know, a stage of resistance where we're kind of grumpy about it. And then we eventually <laughs> get on board and lean in and like we're living this right now. Right. We can see this globally all at the same time. Um, but when leaders have the information about the brain science of change, it just gives you really good guidance about how to better take people through it so that you can shorten the time of resistance and love, lessen the level of resistance. But even if you're awesome, you don't make it go away entirely because it's mm -hmm. part of our biology. Yeah, your description there of, uh, you know, a sense of, uh, of fear, etc. I'm just thinking of all the times that I can see that exact pathway. This is something and I'm like, okay, Oh, okay. You know, and sometimes that, that can happen within a conversation, but sometimes that takes, you know, multiple conversations or, or more time, you know, for that, for that to occur. But I can definitely, as you described that, see that exact pattern in my, uh, in my own reaction to, uh, you know, many things for sure. Yeah. It's what I love about looking at brain science in particular, but biology in general is like when I start sharing stuff with folks, they immediately connect to it because they've had an embodied personal experience of whatever I'm describing. And they're just so much more on board for the rest of the journey, whatever, yep. whatever the topic is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't, I think, and given our audience, et cetera, I'm sure everyone in the, in the, in the chat is going, yep, been there, felt that, <laughs> done that. <laughs> yeah. Failed change initiatives, <laughs> minorly successful ones, some that took longer than others. I think it's good to make sure that you can touch on that human side of things. If I think if there, if we learn nothing else from the current state that we're in, it's, it's that we do have to take care of that. Right. I mean, there, we have to take care of people's emotions and the, and dealing with change and especially right now, I mean, uh, you can't just build a course sometimes, right. Sometimes just, just building a training thing to say how to cope with working from home now all the time when maybe you didn't you can't just can't really i mean it's nice some things some parts of what we're going through i guess you can do that but uh, there's so much more going on that i think doesn't get talked about yeah and i would say so in general change whatever change you know it activates a bunch of things in our brain, but the, the first thing it, it looks for is change is potential danger. So we are all descendants of peoples whose amygdalas were highly tuned to the grass looks different today than it looked <laughs> yesterday. Oh, there's a lion there. <laughs> Better pay attention to it, right? So change just biologically is potential danger. And then when we get more information, 
we can settle down, but we're always going to look at it like, how could this go badly? What's the harm to me? What could I lose? And we cannot really get excited about change until we kind of get to some level of like, okay, I, you know, this isn't that bad. Um, but oftentimes leaders don't lead with what could we gain from it? Here's the why behind it they kind of assume everyone's going to get it. And then people, what's really interesting about humans is that we're story-making creatures. So in the absence of the narrative, we will fill <laughs> one in, but it's always going to be worst case scenario. I was just going to say, it's like the, the rumor mill, right? It when change oh, happens, questions start to arise in everybody's heads. They're all different questions. If those questions aren't immediately answered through that leadership story, at least to their satisfaction, then they start talking to their friends and their peers. And then everything starts going kind of crazy. And next thing you know, people are in, not ready to go along with the <laughs> change. Well, we, we can see this globally right now. I mean, there's never been anything, well, like we all know there's never been anything like this, but what's really interesting is, uh, you know, we're so globally connected right now. And we literally have real time comparisons between how different leaders communicated and led and demonstrated and, you know, supported, whatever that looks like, whether we're talking at a national level, a local level, a corporate level, and then you can see how the folks under that person responded. And when people aren't given clear, calm guidance, they spin off in all kinds of directions. And, you know, I always say people are not being difficult, they're being human. <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's leaders' jobs to understand that, and and they uh, that makes them better leaders. Yeah, Paul in the chat has already made a, a similar observation. Change would be easy without the humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why do we complicate things so? Yeah. Well, we're getting a huge professional development opportunity right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, along those lines, uh, Chris Johnson has asked in the chat, why are some more comfortable with change than others? How can we move towards more of a comfort level with and in change? Great. That's a great question. So I would point to the research by Chris Musselwhite. He actually studied, you know, how people kind of move toward change and there's a continuum. So one end of the continuum are folks that are super comfortable with change. In fact, they love it so much, they seek it out and they drive it. These folks often end up as entrepreneurs and or senior leaders in an organization. They just, they really just enjoy that process. At the other end of the continuum are folks, they're called the conservers. They tend to be really cautious about change. They don't mind doing it if it's really well researched and the plan is really well thought out. They're awesome because they're the folks that are like, let's dot these I's and cross these T's. And they usually are like, you know, wait a minute, we haven't thought about something. You know, great idea, but how are we going to execute this? But they really only want change to go very slowly and to be really well thought out. And then you have folks in the middle who kind of translate between these two ends. And you need all three types for an organization to be successful, but they certainly don't speak the language or approach change the same way. What's interesting is you tend to have, in fact, I'm working with some executive groups right now, and I take them through some exercises where they kind of evaluate how intense change is. And they always, like, they'll put, they literally will put an M&A as very low. And yet the people who have to go through the M&A put it as very high. And so there's kind of a, you know, the leaders tend to undervalue or underperceive how difficult change really is for the middle and frontline folks who have to live it. Mm -hmm. that, oh, go sorry. ahead, Brett. You go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. We always do this. It's the charm that we have in this show. We're getting better. 
Yeah. <laughs> I blame the technology. It's the it's the delay. <laughs> now I forgot what I was going to say. You go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, as you were describing those, um, I could very quickly align myself with with where in that um, in that that I fall, particularly in um, you know in my professional life, and uh, going mm, yep. But then also recognizing that yeah, as you said, <clears throat> all all of those components need to be in place because they all contribute. Um, you know, different value, or they all take care of different aspects of, of change. Uh, yeah, I remember what I was going to go. Uh, let's go to the connection thing, because that's kind of the part I want to go to the the wired to grow part too, and talk about sort of the learning side of it. But uh, I'm a big fan of communities and connection. And I have been ever since the internet switched over from just being a one way street of getting information to being a communication tool and i saw that right away at a point in my career where i was ready to get out of learning it was just got it had gotten kind of boring and then i saw we called it web 2.0 back then <laughs> uh you know and and that's when i got excited again about this is the most it's going to be the most amazing tool this ability for us to communicate and to connect around the world like just like we're doing right now this yeah. is everything i could have dreamed about back then and and more and it's, but why is that right so why is that why is that connection such an important part well i really get into this in the book wired to connect great lead up to the title but <laughs> i was studying like what brings out the best in teams and there's all this biology well i always talk about it this way if you remember nothing else about humans remember this we're wired for three things in this order the first is survival so it's our need for food, water, shelter. And so obviously like when fires are happening or a typhoon is coming through, you really see that this virus is about survival. So all of us have that stirred up every day because every day we're seeing the death toll and you know, it's just, you can go grocery shopping and end up dying, right? So um, survival, but when things are good, survival stuff can still get stirred up in the office because it's around promotions and raises and access to opportunities because our paycheck is how we buy food, water, shelter. So, you know, the layoffs that are happening and downsizing, that's really going to stir stuff up. And even for the employees that are left, it puts them on alert. And, and so that's the amygdala part of the brain. Then the second thing we're wired to do is belong. We are a tribal species and we are meant to be in community with each other. So entire parts of our biology are dedicated to reading emotion in others, kind of knowing where we are in the group. We're highly tuned to exclusion because if the tribe ousts us, we're likely to be eaten by the lion. We survive better in community. Um, what's really interesting, though, is our brain does not really see the differences that uh, you think. Like children really don't see race. They don't make race mean anything. Uh, they don't even really notice it. The brain doesn't even notice it till you're about five or six years old, which is when kids start asking questions about skin color and hair texture. Um, so we're not wired to really differentiate, differentiate ourselves that way. But how our leaders talk to us determines how we feel about other groups. So if a leader says, hey, we're all on the same team, we're all working in this together, you actually see racial differences and conflict around biological differences go way down in organizations. And when leaders don't give us that directive, then people can have some of that division show up. And of course, it can be stoked and stirred as well. So belonging is our second key thing that we do, and it's tightly wound to survival. 
And then the third thing, uh, which is probably our deepest need, is we're wired to become our best selves. We're wired to seek out and achieve our potential, whatever that looks like. And of course, it changes over our lifetime. So you grow and you achieve and you learn and you maybe celebrate for a few days. But what's the next thing you do? You, you make a new to-do list. You set mm -hmm. a new goal. So we are a species that hungers um, for discovery. And that's the external world as well as our internal growth and development. So, you know, it's always been true about us. But what I love about millennials is they were really the first workforce to come and say, no, this really matters to me. It's one of the top three things I'm going to look for when choosing a job. And it's also one of the top three reasons I'm going to leave is access to opportunities to learn and grow. Mm -hmm. um, a neat question in the, in the panel here, talking about the absence of the narrative. Um, in these unprecedented times, can the narrative ever be, I don't know? In other words, I guess what, you know, leadership, what happens when leadership, how does leadership handle and how does the organization need it to be handled if the answer is we're not sure or we don't have the answer yet? Great question. And I've actually seen several leaders do a phenomenal job with that. So when you can't lean on, here's our plan, you lean on, here's our process. So we don't know the answers, but here's how we're going to take care of our community. Here's how we're going to seek out and find information and communicate it to you. Here's how we're going to deal with performance issues. Like I've seen communities get really torn up where um, folks don't have trust that misbehavior is going to be handled. And of course, HR issues or academic, you know, behavior issues can't be talked about. It's private. And yet if people do a really good job of explaining, hey, if there's ever a charge against someone's behavior, here's how we will handle it. We Step A, we do this. Step B, we do this. Step C, we do that. People then lean on the process and have trust in the process and it gives them a lot. So you, you got to figure out where can I give people some sense of stability? And it may be a promise like, hey, I don't know the answers and I'm not sure how some of this is going to go, but I promise to you, this is how I will treat you. I will be transparent. Mm. I will communicate. I will always try to preserve jobs over this. I will, you know, I will let you know as soon as I know. So good leaders uh, build that trust. And of course, trust is earned. It's not declared. Um, so leaders who walk that talk over time really then, you know, the, the, the leaders who already had trust established in their organizations are doing a much better job right now because people know they can, they can count on that person to provide that guidance. And then in a crisis like we've seen, I mean, we really have examples, videotape evidence of leaders who stepped into that role and communicated with calmness and clarity and consistency. In crisis, you have to communicate the same thing over and over and over mm -hmm. again. And, and we can see leaders who literally simmered down their communities by doing that and others that, you know, the, the narrative got away and people really freaked out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say trust is a good, it's a good direction to go because um, I think in lieu of a narrative, let's just say one of those leaders um, makes a mistake and doesn't draw the whole picture, all of that. If they have a large or a high level of trust amongst all the employee bases, I think that need to shift into the, I need to protect that first level, that, that life, that fight or flight sort of response if the trust is already there they're 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 more likely to give that leader the benefit of the doubt 
I think. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is uh, I go into the neuroscience of belonging and how we kind of engage with each other. And it's a four-step process. You know, the first part is like, and these all happen in milliseconds. You know, when you walk into a room, your brain is instantly sorting for faces. And do I know folks? And if they, you know someone, then your memory comes up too about that person. Yeah. The second thing you're doing simultaneously is you're reading emotion and intent. So is there anybody here who wants to do me harm? Yes mm -hmm. or no? And if it's a no, you can simmer down. If it's a yes, you're going to go into survival mode. The third thing we sort for is, are we part of a we together? Or is it me and you? Or are we a we somehow? Are we part of the same organization? Are we part of the same neighborhood? Are we part of the same race? Are we part of the same generation? We do this kind of me and we sort. And then the last sort we do is, are we in an us versus them relationship? Now we can handle, well, biologically they're super different. So biologically we can be in an us and them. I'm from Southern California and they're from Northern California. But when people are set up as an us versus them, and right now the NBA is playing so we can see it play out. And in fact, uh, folks who study this sometimes study uh, sports fans because they can be so avid. But what's really interesting is if our leaders have set us up as us versus them, we have a biological shift that happens. And the difference is when my tribe, I happen to be a Lakers fan. So when my tribe <clears throat> does something good, I get serotonin and dopamine when they have a win. So every basket they make, I'm getting serotonin and dopamine. Um, in addition, you know, part of your tribe, whether that's your coworkers or your neighborhood, um, if we're more likely to trust them and forgive acts of, uh, you know, where trust was broken. So we, we give people more forgiveness. We also are more likely to engage in acts of altruism, for example, donations and things. If we're set up in us versus them, now a different level happens where if the other side fails, I get serotonin and dopamine. So when they don't make their basket, I get a feel good. In addition, um, we're much more comfortable going to issues of or acts of hostility and derogation and, uh, and judgment. So we can really start to, to demean people. What's interesting is if you study uh, what has to happen in a community for those people to eventually engage in genocide or war, where you're literally turning on neighbors and friends, you first start with us versus them and build up the biology of this. And you can go back and look at genocides all over the world and you can see how that was mm -hmm. the intentional first step to, to set people up, us versus them. Now, we can certainly see it on a global level like that, but it happens in corporations like Microsoft, uh, you know, a couple decades ago really thrived on an us versus them culture. They set up every team to compete against each other for resources. And while this did create bursts of innovation at the time, Ultimately, it harmed Microsoft to the point where they're still trying to recover from it, even though the new CEO, Satya Nadella, has worked really hard to create a growth mindset culture. Because biologically, once we cast someone in the them, we don't just override that the next day if we're reorged and put on the same team. Our body still engages with them as an enemy. So be very careful in creating mm. us versus them dialogue. It really has long-term impacts on people. Yeah. They called that ranking and rating at Intel back in the day. I think even mm -hmm. Intel got rid of it. I think Microsoft had sort of the same thing. I think they both 
both big companies sort of modeled that after each other. I don't know who did it first, but I can just tell you from firsthand experience that, yes, it was uh, a blood sport on many levels. <laughs> hmm. uh, someone in the chat is saying, what was the first sport? <clears throat> so the first one is, do I know you? So it's recognized faces. Then, uh, you know, are, are we a we or, a, you know, me or we, and then us versus them. So it kind of goes in that order. Hmm. So um, back when we were talking about, um, you know, if the answer or the, from the leadership is we don't currently know, etc. Um, Amy had pointed out in the in the chat that uh, putting the process before the plan requires lots of vulnerability. And then she's asked a, a related question in the question, you know, how do you cope comfortable with being vulnerable as part of that uh, as part of that leadership? That's a great question. I mean, I think. Um the research is really clear and I would send people run, don't walk to Dr. Brene Brown's research. Like this is her thing. She's got two of the most walked Ted, watched Ted talks ever. Um, and her research on vulnerability is incredibly compelling. Um, it's really the seat of true connection, authentic leadership. It's where all the good stuff goes. And on a, we kind of know that on a, on an individual level. Yeah. And yet we can be raised with certainly societal messages that vulnerability, you know, in, in the United States, you know, it's, it's very much that vulnerability can be seen as weakness when really it's courage. And so, um, what is helpful is when people start to understand what vulnerability really is then they can lean into it. Now, vulnerability is not just, you know, spilling all your secrets to the first person who walks up to you, right? Like people have to earn mm -hmm. the trust for vulnerability to happen. Um, but I think where leaders can really gain some insight is that by by being willing to go first and role modeling, modeling vulnerability, it can really just set the tone in the whole organization. And saying, I don't know, but here's what I can promise you that I will do as a leader doesn't make you less of a leader. In fact, it, because you're willing to say, I don't know, people are like, oh, I don't know sometimes either. That's good, you know? So we can really, we can really make a better connection through vulnerability, um, but it's not about, you know, uh, vulnerability is not the same as just having no sense of boundary, right? <laughs> there really is about being very clear about what you're sharing and why you're sharing it, um, but for sure, I think I think men in particular in our society have been raised that the, any sign of weakness is bad, and I think many of them struggle with understanding how and when to use vulnerability because it's been a long time socialization around it. I think women are a little bit more comfortable with it, and certainly we're moving to more equal ways with that. But I would say there, that's still a place of growth for our society in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a question in, in the question panel about who that was, and I believe that the question was uh, was Brene asking Brown. A, a Brene Brown, and we've put the link into the chat too. Um, well, <laughs> I know what I'm. I know what lot, I'm doing. There's a lot of people that love uh, love her work. I, she was, uh, yeah, she's. Uh, I think she was a speaker at one of our industry conferences fairly recently, at least within yeah, the last few great. years. The other person I would point you all to, as it's related to this topic, is Amy Edmondson. She's a professor at Harvard, and she came up with the concept of psychological safety. And it is a huge game changer in terms of bringing out the best in teams. Um, it turns out that the teams that outperform the rest consistently 
are teams that have built psychological safety. And psychological safety is that sense that you could come forward with questions or concerns, critiques, or even admitting a mistake, and that the team is safe for, you know, that you will not be rejected or punished for doing that. So it's a pretty low bar, right? I can, <laughs> I can raise my hand and say I screwed up and know that I'm not going to be rejected or punished. Um, but the teams that have it just consistently outperform and you know, it, it has kind of these two components to it. One is empathy. People truly care about each other. And another one is that they're either intentionally or just organically, everybody's voice is heard. Everybody's voice is brought into the conversation because there's a belief that everyone has something to contribute. So check out Amy Edmondson's work on psychological mm. safety. I talk about it in Wired to Connect because it's so important. Um, and I've, I've built it into my training programs that people can get certified in, but it, it's mm. one of the things I immediately teach people when I'm going into an organization is what it is and how you create it. Yeah. Uh, in the chat, Paul was mentioning or, or tying this back then to what a lot of us, um, you know, in the chat and in our careers here, we're not necessarily upper level leaders, but, you know, working as, as trainers or, or, or people in instructional design, uh, you know, that level, um, it's a, th these things about empathy and, and risk, you know, are very key to, to the roles that we play as well. We, as a, if you're, if you're leading a group in training, you are leading people through change and um, the critical need to, uh, you know, create a safe space where people can try something new without feeling that they're at risk personally. Um, so it's not just about, you know, the C level that we're talking here. It's about, uh, the leadership roles that we all find ourselves in, even if those are within smaller, you know, groups, there's so many things here for us to, to, to take to heart. Absolutely. And I just want to highlight this for a moment because, um, you know, I've been in learning design for a very long time. And so I have been part of the field since you came into it by being a facilitator, you know, you, mm -hmm. you were in the room with people. But, but when graphics and online learning kind of took off, there was a whole nother career path in, which was from the graphic design, web development kind of side of it, right? And I see a big difference between, I see a big difference between those two pathways, that unless you've been in the room looking at people's faces and realizing, oh no, they didn't, they're not getting it. Like mm. I do not see the aha moments on their face. They look confused. Or you're standing up there with an exercise that in your mind you knew was brilliant and it is bombing horribly, <laughs> right? So I call that chasing the aha. And when you've been in a live room, whether it's online or you know in physical person with each other, you're reading the cues and you're having to scramble in your mind and like fix it. You're having to like do something to like make this land. And I think because online learning, particularly asynchronous learning, can be designed and made really pretty as a flow, it's not the same. It's not the same because you don't necessarily have that instant feedback that you are bombing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would say to everyone, if you want to really increase your game as an instructional designer, go out and facilitate. Facilitate mm -hmm. live workshops because there's nothing that gives you that skill set like having to look in their faces and know that you know, that oh shit moment, like oh, <laughs> going badly and you just get better at, at starting and you do that enough. And then you start to know, oh yeah, this is what I got to do to make this land. And here's how I, how I connect these dots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the idea of asynchronous learning, which, you know, has, has become such a, a thing that we all get involved with making. 
Uh, and last week we were even talking, uh, our guest was, a, it was more about um, bringing in things like laughter and that level, you know, of emotion. Um, so, but we often think of it as just information, right? Like if we just put the information into their brain, boom, things happen, change happens, performance improves or, or whatever. Um, but there's also a moral responsibility it just, you know, between you and the people that you're, you're trying to help, but also in order to ensure the success of that, that you have, uh, you are creating a space that is conducive to, um, uh, or a, a, a product or a, an experience then that, that does have uh, aspects of empathy and support in it. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think, you know, one of the things I work on with a lot of orgs on is I'll go in and help them kind of analyze their learning strategy and where their assets are. And sometimes we can, you know, we can get we can get enticed by the shiny bells and whistles. And yet, you know, there's a difference between information and instruction, right? Information, you can solve it with a PDF, give people access. You can make it fancy. If you want to throw some bells and whistles on it, it also probably works as a PDF. So do you want to over invest your mm -hmm. time and energy there? But instruction is then where you're actually teaching somebody something. And then you got to look at, you know, there's three components to that. There's the tell, let me tell you what this, what we're, what you need to know. But then we got to show, cause we've got these mirror neurons and we're actually built for observational learning. I see a lot of people telling, but then not showing and showing is something you can leverage video. You can film your top performers. It can become a scalable asset you use again and again. And then the third most important part is the learner has to do it. They have to try it. And that's where we start building the habit. And I can't tell you how many times I'll go into an org and they've, they've invested a lot of time and money and really wonderful learning things, but people aren't getting to actually try them. They're not getting to break some glass and fail. So, you know, I once went into a, a major Silicon Valley corporation and they had a three-day manager program. So pulling people off the job and into this training for three days. And there's a lot of great content, but there was no practice. So we talked about what a good one-on-one -on -one looks like, but we didn't actually do it. We talked about what performance feedback looks like, but we didn't actually do mm. it. And, you know, habits, it takes 40 to 50 repetitions for someone to build a habit. And if you don't build that in the training room, it could be a great event, but they're going to go back to their environment and the, everything about that environment is going to take them down the old habit and you haven't grew to the new one. So the do part, tell, show, do is really important. And so we've got information, we've got instruction. And then the third thing, I call it the three eyes, is inspiration. We got to add some elements in there that get people excited about why they should learn, why they should change, what, what's in it for them. So those are some things I think about when I'm building a learning for people. Mm -hmm. And and just that it, when it comes to things like practice, et cetera, so much of that circles back to what we've been talking about, the the sense of safety, uh, the sense of belonging and, and support in order to put yourself at risk, you know, potentially uh, over, you know, maybe I'm going to muck this up and there's 30 people in the room watching me. So, yeah. And we got to, so definitely creating safety for that. The other thing that I would just add here, and it's from Wired to Connect, and it blew my mind and it actually blew the researcher's mind was that they found that when we experience exclusion, it lights up the same region of the brain as physical pain. So we experience exclusion as physical pain. And so they were, they were really confused by this. They were like, wait a minute, what? And so they did a bunch more studies and it found out you could be excluded. Like they had, um, so they did a bunch of other tests. So they took people that, uh, and had them excluded by people that they didn't respect or like still hurt. 
right? They did very minor exclusions, still hurt. And then they said, well, gosh, if this is lighting up the pain center of the brain, would pain pills work? So they gave subjects a range of pain medicine from over-the-counter Advil to, you know, more intense pain meds that you get when you're really injured. And sure enough, it turns off the feeling of exclusion in the brain. And I really think that this is contributing to our pandemic of opioid, you know, opioid addiction, because people go on pain meds for usually legitimate injuries. You break your arm. And how pain meds work is they don't heal the injury. Your arm's still broken. It just disconnects the sensors in the brain that register that sensation as pain. And when the chemical wears off, you feel the pain again, you take another pill. Well, it turns out that while you're on that medicine, it disconnects your social pain. You don't feel whatever exclusion you have in your life, whether it's with your coworkers or your family or your loved ones. And I think that this is why people, when they're, when it's time to come off the meds, they may be physically healed, but now they've had a break in their emotional pain and we're not talking about it. We don't know how to help people mm. move through that. And so this is why, you know, belonging really matters in an organization. If you're allowing environments where people feel excluded or bullied or anything, you know, bullying is a really big deal in workplaces. It's people are four times more likely to be bullied at work than to experience sexual harassment or, um, or physical, physical harassment. Um, it's really, or sorry, racial and sexual harassment. It's really a big deal. And so ex ex exclusion is something we should all be on the lookout for. And the, the antidote to that is to really focus on belonging and, and inclusion. And so really mm. having some, some focus on that is important. And of course, yeah. this is playing out in our country right now. Long yeah, for standing sure. exclusion, systemic oppression, systemic racism is long standing exclusion. And so we have co communities who have had generations of physical pain and emotional pain. And at some point, people can't withstand that anymore. Mm -hmm. Is it make it? Does that whole neuroscience of that and that that pain sensor is that what kind of makes it hard for us to? Like we all try really hard. Well, I shouldn't say we all or else there wouldn't be a problem. But I mean, everything, it's like we want diversity in the workplace and we want to build teams and we want diversity in the workplace. But you get a whole bunch of very, very different people around a table. Step one normally is let's just start the work. But if, it, if everybody is really, truly diverse and different, they're all going to not understand the other person just by looking at them and then engaging with them is going to be different because everybody engages with other people in different ways. And so it almost feels like trying really hard to create a diverse team or a diverse environment is going to end up exacerbating some of this stuff that's just deep seated in our brains. Well, it could or it doesn't. So remember what our leaders tell us really help us orient. So, uh, there's been lots of studies around if the leader says we're all part of the same team and we're working together, our perception of those differences actually is reduced. It, oh, it, no. Even, even longstanding historical differences is reduced because the leader has said we're all we and we're working together. Uh, the, the data is really clear. The more diverse the team is, the better the team performs. 
But it also means you have to really then lean into creating an environment of psychological safety and respect. And so what happens is, I'm sure everyone's familiar with Tuckman's five stages of group development, right? Forming, storming, norming, performing, uh, journeying, yes. or transforming. Well, to get to performing, to get to a good state of performance, we go through forming and storming. And that's really where people spend the less, the least amount of attention. Like, let's bring together these people mindfully. Let's set them up to get to know each other. Let's have them do a few activities where they can build some trust. Let's have them all talk about the strengths they're building to the team. We kind of throw people together. And yeah, there's going to be some natural conflict that comes as they tussle ideas. But if it's set up with this, you know, with intention and with psychological safety, the group will move through it and go on to performing. If not, what happens in forming and storming is they start to create negative norms, like withholding information, undercutting each other, competing against each other. And then the team, instead of on this trajectory uh, of getting better, stalls out and makes a turn into dysfunction. And then eventually learned helplessness, which is a mm. psychological state, which is really hard to overcome once it's been yeah, in place for a long time. So in my team's training, I talk a lot about this and why it's so important that team leaders understand these concepts and really spend time in those first few meetings, really helping the team set up the right kind of environment. And then once that container is created, people can really handle conflict and tussling with those differences and collaborating together. Uh, it's just, if they're not set up in the right way, that can become a source of friction and dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Managing that storming bit, I think is you're like, you're right. I think uh, the thing that I've experienced the most or the most difficulty is trying to get past that. I think once teams get past that storming part, because people are so very, uh averse to to confronting conflict or even having conflict that sometimes when it happens doing the other three steps uh, getting through to the other three steps is is impossible because it's just caused so much the storming part caused so much damage that it's just impossible to move on to the next phase yeah. Well, in, in, if people read Wired to Connect, I pulled all the neuroscience together into a new model of team building. So it's called the four gates to peak team performance. And there's actually gates you have to move through and you can get stuck at a gate. And if you, if you get stuck there, you're never going to get to peak performance. And so it has the information about like what's going on biologically, but more importantly, strategies to make sure you get through the gates or if you've got some problems and you're stalling out, how to fix it and move forward again. Cool. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been because, yeah, I've been in a lot of situations where that's been really hard over the years over. I mean, it was a long time ago, but um, yeah. So we're, we're in this crazy different world that we've been in for the last um, <laughs> six months. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, many of us are struggling with um, or, or having having to shift over to these, uh, you know, these virtual worlds like, uh, you know, Teams conversations and, and Zoom meetings, et cetera. And so some of the sort of standard things that we might even just do, you know, implicitly that would have supported these things are, are, are awfully hard to, to carry out. Um, I'm wondering about, you know, maybe a few ideas for, for helping uh, you know, implement some of this stuff in this world where we're all sitting in different rooms, but, you know, connected with cameras now. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard. We are, we are biologically meant to be in the same space with each other. So, mm -hmm. you know, there is part of our, like, 
I'm having a lovely conversation with you. You guys are awesome, but you're each, you know, two inches <laughs> tall on my screen. And I know that you're not actually two inches tall. I also can't see the rest of your body and my peripheral vision can see that I'm still sitting in my house. Right. So <laughs> this gives us a proxy for being together and it's better than nothing. And it's certainly visual is better than just auditory because I at least have some more data, but our, our brain and our body is, is wired to read all kinds of data points in terms of how we understand people's emotions and their intent and when there's a disconnect between their words and their mood and all that stuff. So we are at a disadvantage right now. Technology is great, except now that we're living at 24 seven, you realize you can spend an hour with someone and not get that same satisfied feeling you had when you spent an hour sitting with them in real space. Um, so, you know, it's kind of proving the point. So um, I would say right now, you know, we got to over index on trying to have more authentic conversations and give people a chance in meetings to share what's going on with them. Because what we're missing is all the spontaneous community. Mm -hmm where I'd pop by your cubicle and say, so what'd you do this weekend? And you'd be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. We did this, we did that. Or I'm walking through the office and I overhear someone talking about something and I pop into the conversation because I happen to know something about it. We're missing all the spontaneous communication and everything's planned right now. So companies that I think are, are doing a good job are, are building in some just fun social activities, even on Zoom, when they can, they're gathering safely at a distance with masks on. So they're still trying to do some team building activities um, outside, you know, in, in safe ways. Um, I would say that that expect, just expect some disconnect happening on the on your teams. People are really hitting change fatigue right now. So uh, we're seeing just pure exhaustion, uh, physical and emotional exhaustion. People have been leaning in to this for a while and it's difficult. And so part of it is also lowering our expectations. People, right. I'm hearing now across so many organizations that people are just at their max and they leaned in and sprinted and they're just tired. So we're going to see more exhaustion. People are going to disengage. People are going to be more confused, make poor judgments. People are going to be snapping more, you know, and, and having more conflicts. They're going to be more cynical. So, you know, to counterbalance that we've got to be you know, first of all, acknowledging what people have already been through a, a well-timed thank you from a leader or, Hey guys, I can just see how much you've already leaned in and I'm so appreciative, or I know this is hard. Let's just hang in there or take half a day off, you know, just go, go take some rest time. Let's, let's drop our quality level from A to B, you know, let's, let's pause on this project and pick it up later. All these things are good questions to be asking. I also think that leaders right now need to be paying attention to, you know, people's mental health is really getting strained. We're really seeing a rise in depression, anxiety, and suicide. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's really quite profound. And for those of you who have children, it's really hitting the kids hard. So if any of you have kids, start looking at what's happening with children and depression and suicide, particularly teens. Um, so things that we can be doing is really making sure that we're communicating over and over again about health benefits and how people get access to therapy. We can check in with folks. We can express our concern and our care. Um, and, you know, just other stuff, I think even just the day-to-day how you felt like you belonged was going to the workplace and having this tribe of people you hung out with. And now we're all in our family tribes or our home tribes, but people are feeling a little disconnected from the vision and the mission of the place that they worked for. And, and I would imagine that you're going to see some turnover happening for your highly 
skilled people, they may seek employment elsewhere. Um, we're also just seeing grief. Hmm. People are feeling grief, grief about yeah. our old way of living, grief about literal loss of life, grief about, you know, connecting. So I would say this is a time for us all to be super gentle and kind with each other, super gentle and kind with ourselves. You know, how are you taking care of yourself or it's time to lean into some self-care and mindfulness is a practice that from a neuroscience perspective, the data is just super stunning on terms of how it helps us. So if you have not played with a mindfulness practice, I would encourage trying one and also mm. getting out resources to your people. There's a lot of folks in our industry. We have a lot of consultants who, when this first hit, immediately their livelihood, and it just it just dawned on me how many, uh, until you just started mentioning that, uh, that reached out to me and said, I've lost all my work. Uh, it was like, like overnight or over a week, however long it took all these clients to contact them, just gone. Yeah. Like, they I had were, that happen to me too. Like unbelievable, just craziness like that. And so you can only imagine the type of stress that puts people under and, you yeah. know, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate in that I definitely, you know, I lost three or four months worth of stuff. It just poofed, you know, sorry, we can't do it. So of course I can't invoice till I deliver it. <laughs> they all got pushed back. Yeah. So I use that time to lean into to some projects I've been meaning to get to and, and working on the next training I want to release and, and just tried to, you know, and then baked more banana bread and, you know, <laughs> I'm a recondoed the hell out of my drawers. You know, I just, <laughs> um, what was yeah. really interesting is during this time, I released my change training for free for folks around the world as, cause I was like, what can I do to help? And there was, 1200 people from all over the world signed up and took it. Oh, and wow. what was really interesting is so many of them were L and D professionals. And what they were writing in the introduction was like, Hey, I live in, you know, whatever country it was literally all over the world. Um, either I'm in my job and we're pivoting and I'm just trying to do all this stuff or I've lost my job and I'm using this time to improve my skills. So whether people were busy or not busy, I saw a huge uptick in people just leaning into professional growth and development. And so mm -hmm. things, things like LinkedIn learning masterclass, you know, cornerstone, all of them. Yeah. I think people have been leaning into to taking advantage of some of these opportunities. And I, and again, it just proves to like, we hunger to grow. So when faced with a challenge, <laughs> we will bake cookies and then try to learn something. Yeah. <laughs> I, this has been such a great conversation. I didn't even look at it, look at the time until just now. <laughs> we told you in the green room, you know, we only go about 30, 45 minutes and I look and it's like 10 minutes to the top of the arrow, <laughs> but this is fantastic. Brits. Thank you so much. Any other sort of parting words you want to share with the folks before we go? I would say I'm going to have two comments. One is, as we, you know, people are going to be working from home for a while. And I know some companies are like, oh, maybe this is just the new normal. You know, people work from home. That's fine. 
people work from when people work from home they work harder than when they come into the office but companies continue to need to continue to take care of people so we need to make sure they have an ergonomically correct desk at home otherwise you're going to have so many health crises later if people are sitting at things yeah. we need to still support them it doesn't mean that companies now wipe their hands of having to take care of people's work environments so we got to think that through um, and if you're in a place of influence have your leaders think that through it's time mm -hmm. to start considering okay so should we start shipping these desks out to people's houses or how do we how do we make sure that they have the right kind of work environment in their in their home area. The other thing that I would say is for the tribe, for my learning pros out there, this is a real time for us to shine. You know, in, in chaos and confusion, we can be the ones that step up with that calm messaging. I would say this is a great time to um, ask for forgiveness later rather than permission up front. So just start crafting some of the things you know your people need and and put it out there and be a voice of of leadership. It's also a time that companies need to innovate. So how can you help support people in leaning into innovation? Um, you know, how can you continue to help communication folks flow smoothly, start seeing where the gaps are and, and lean into being the one to solve it. This is a great time for us to really shine. And then the other thing I would say is, we also have to be prepared inevitably for the leaders to say, oh, well, now that you pivoted all the learning online, look at how cheap it is. We just we'll <laughs> leave it there. And I think we need to start building the data and the case now for what's lost. The, the good news is people are feeling it, right? Yeah. People are feeling that they don't get the same thing as they do in person. So, um, but you're going to have to probably make that case. So I would start building the case and the evidence now so that you can later push for a more balanced return to somewhere in the middle, not leaving everything online because oh, stuff is lost when we're online. Yep, yep. Um, and as you said earlier, be super gentle, gentle. Um, and, and kind these days. So, yes. So with that, we'll, I think what we'll do is we'll bring in the, uh, the super gentle and kind theme song and we'll, we'll dance <laughs> gently and kindly on into the rest of our day. Yeah. Um, Britt, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been absolutely, uh, absolutely a great chance to, to catch up and, and process a lot of things that have been floating around different pieces, et cetera, of my own experience for all of this and connecting a lot of dots for me. And I, you can tell from the chat and the, and the questions, uh, ask that so many folks uh, that have joined us here today are, are getting so much value out of this. So this has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And I love all the comments coming in through the thing. Thank you all for your time and attention and go do something kind for yourself. Yeah. The next 10 minutes to go be sweet to yourself somewhere. Yep. Yeah. Go have that banana bread. <laughs> I'll have to apologize. Everybody be really kind to me because my iPad died and I have no music oh. for us to dance out to. And I'm feeling very sad about that because I love dancing out. But uh, All right. We're going to do the hustle. I'm do the hustle. Do, 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 do. Boy, we're dating ourselves generationally here, aren't we? <laughs> There's a lot of other dances that I think other people might have thought of doing instead. Yeah. Guys, thanks so much for everything. Yep, Chris is pointing out we're adapting to change here, guys. We're improvising. <laughs> uh, Britt, thanks so much for joining us. We'll bring ourselves to a close. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, thanks for the everyone. great chat and the conversations, etc. And, and we'll see everybody for next week's episode. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Britt.